Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. Three things before we get into today's episode. First off, I want to wish my awesome friend Lynn a happy birthday. She has her own podcast called The Motorcycle Scoop. You should definitely go check that out if you're into motorcycles and ice cream. Second thing is Bridge Nine. They need our help right now. We need to come together as a community and show them some love. The building that they are currently stationed in has been sold, so they have the option of staying and paying higher rent or the more likely move, which is to relocate. And uh, especially during the pandemic, uh, I can't imagine how hard moving will be. I hate moving in general. So if you can, please head over to bridge9.com and help them out. There's a bunch of different options the way you can help out uh, by buying you know, 25th anniversary stuff hit the raid vault just please do whatever you can to help out a label that's been around for a really long time and has been doing a lot of awesome things so shout out to bridge nine and i'll also link it in the uh, description below so please uh, if you can uh, help out bridge nine they need it we love them so please just uh, do your part and help out thank you and last thing Today's episode is brought to you by From Within Records. I'm happy to announce that we finally have an official release date for the Once in Unity comp, which features Seed of Pain, Age of Apocalypse, Restraining Order, Mourning, Choice to Make, Shackled, Simulacra, Lastra, Sheer Force, Hangman, Despise, Envision, Out for Justice, and MH Chaos. The release date. August 22nd, mark your calendars, do whatever you have to do to remind yourself, but there it is. The official release date is August 22nd, and I'm so stoked to have that in my calendar, and I'm really looking forward to that. So shout out to From Within Records, always doing awesome things, one of my current favorite record labels. So thank you again for supporting us, and we'll always support you. But today's episode, it was pretty special for me. I'd been a uh, fan of Death Before Dishonor for a really long time. And I swear the early days of me getting into hardcore and my friends and I just trying to find our way together, stumbled upon this DVD, Boston Beatdown. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, it's available on YouTube if you search for it, or you can try to locate an actual physical copy, which would be interesting. But we watched that and it definitely inspired us. Like obviously, not to just uh, uh, you know praise the the violence, but we actually took what the guys were actually saying about their scene and how they helped changed it and how they had these like special values. And I still hold some of that stuff close to my heart today. And honestly, I I didn't really know what I was watching when I was that that younger, but it put me on to a lot of great bands uh, such as Death of Fortis Honor. So I was really, really excited to have Brian on the podcast. And to to be honest, the main reason I wanted to have him on is because uh, we're celebrating uh, one year of their latest record coming out, Unfinished Business. And for a band to be in hardcore for so long and consistently put out good music, I, I think is awesome. But I think it's really uh, rare for a, a band to take a whole decade off and be able to come back and just fit right back in. Uh, no gimmicks, just straight up hardcore. So I, I, th I thought it was pretty fascinating, and I was just curious why they were gone for so long, and I just wanted to pick his brain, so I was really happy that he was down to come on the podcast and talk to me. So strap in. It was a really fun conversation, and if you're a fan of Boston Hardcore, like I am, you're going to enjoy this one. So please, without further ado, welcome Brian to the show. 
All right, and we're live. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thanks for having me. How's everybody doing? How are you doing? Uh, dude, I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, seriously, I'm so grateful that you were down to do this. I've been a fan of your band, Death Before Dishonor, for a, a really long time. So seriously, I, I just want to say thank you for being down. Of course, man. I appreciate you being a fan for a long time. Probably means more to me. So all good. For sure. So I want to take this way back to like the, the early 2000s. I was I had to have been like at least like a junior or a sophomore in high school. I remember some friends and I, we were out in Huntington Beach at some record store. And I never really cared to go to those kind of places because I, I never collected records or really bought any like physical CDs or anything. So I just kind of went along yeah. for the ride and just kind of browsing this record store. They had DVDs. And I stumbled yeah. and I stumbled upon uh, Boston Beatdown and, uh, you know, just through, uh, uh, you know, talking to friends in the scene and uh, hearing about how crazy the scene was out in Boston. I was like, oh, crazy. Like, I've heard of this before. Like, I can't believe they have it in this random store. Like, I got to pick it up and check it out. Sure enough, play the DVD. And this is where I first find out about Death Before Dishonor. And I, I was like, holy crap, this is this is insane. Uh, and like, you know, from that point on, I was like, OK, cool. Like, I'm a fan of this band, uh, really interested yeah. in uh, what they you know have to say and what they're doing for their scene. So I, I have to you know give credit to that uh, record store for having that DVD to, uh, you know, that's what put me on to your band. Definitely. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of people uh, throughout the years that have like checked this out because of that DVD. Um, it, obviously in other reasons too, but you're not like the first person to say that. I definitely think, I mean, the do what year did that come out? That had to be like yeah. early 2000s, right? 2003, four. I don't even remember. It was Oh four. Yeah. It sounds about right. It's probably like 2004. And I know like, I mean, Boston was pretty wild at the time. I think that it's a little bit more, I think it was like, I don't know it's, it's it's tough to say like growing up in Boston I do think Boston kind of had like a wild hardcore scene but I also think it was more the location and like I, I know this, this stuff on that DVD a lot of it was just like dumb street fights and that would happen a lot just because of where the clubs were located in Boston that had hardcore shows like a lot of them were like literally behind like Fenway Park and you know if there was like a Sunday matinee and you know hardcore show and then there was a bunch of drunk dudes coming out of the baseball game some would linger in the shows or they'd just be fights in general and even half of i think a bunch of those fights were just like regular fights that like dudes would just sit out on that street with like a camcorder it was called Lansdowne street and just like videotape stuff so anyways and at that time i think like there's a dvd called like bum fights that was pretty big and dudes in boston just kind of wanted to capitalize it like Part of it was definitely like, oh, look at this crazy violence. But at the same time, there is a lot of talking in that DVD that kind of talks a little bit about like the history, at least of uh, said people's you know vision of Boston at the time. That makes sense. Yeah, and I feel like okay, so and this is my perspective because obviously like I wasn't around Boston at that time, I, and I, um, to this day I've only been to Boston I think like two or three times for shows. So for sure. uh, I, I, I'm I, from my knowledge, we're just watching that DVD. Uh, it, it seems like you guys were you and your group of friends were pretty important for kind of shaping uh, that whole scene. Would you think that's fair to say? I would say that, I, and and I would actually probably give more credit to like my elders. Like you know, I mean, obviously they're my friends, but. And not that I wasn't involved in certain things, but I definitely think that, you know, uh, the dudes that were going to shows and like, 
I didn't start going to shows until probably like early nineties and I was still young. So, you know, I was just like a show goer. I didn't even start a band yet, but definitely a lot of dudes were, uh, helped keep the scene going. Like there was, you know, the, I think a lot of big cities have this, like the transition between like, you know, coming in from punk rock and hardcore punk and metal. And then, you know, Boston had an issue with like Nazis and stuff like that, which I think a lot of scenes did. And a lot of like, you know, the generation before me dealt with that to make it like safe from stuff like that. And and on top of that, just <clears throat> getting involved in like, you know, a lot of dudes that are on that DVD did put shows together, you know, did do like security. So you didn't have to have regular security guards and like did love hardcore and Boston is, just kind of always had a violent element, you know, and it's not something that was like, yeah, dude, you know, go to shows and beat people up by any means. It definitely, I think, comes off a little bit like that if you just take that DVD for the shock value, you know what I mean? But uh, I think it's definitely fair to say uh, your assumption would be right, you know what I mean? Okay, so wanted to just put a quick pause on the Boston Beatdown talk, but I, I, I kind of want to go back to your early days. I, I'm really curious. You, know, you mentioned the early '90s. How did uh, you stumble upon hardcore, and how did you start going to shows and starting bands? When I was younger, I was like super into hip hop, and then I started like skating and getting into like metal. Um, and there was like a couple dudes that like I went to school with. Or I hung out with in school that were like into hardcore and started, you know, typical like, I don't know, early 90s, someone gave me like a mixtape. Uh, maybe even before that, I think I remember, I get confused because my brain is just shot, but I do remember seeing like on Headbangers Ball, like the first Headbangers Ball, and like on Beavis and Butthead. And I don't know what came first, but I remember seeing like hardcore videos and stuff like that. Like they would play like, biohazard and life agony and you know like suicidal tendencies and stuff like that but i remember like dudes that i went to school started like telling me about hardcore and i remember i bought i think my first record i always get messed up with this it was either like the first biohazard full length was probably my first record but like what really got me into hardcore is when i bought you know i would go to like the local cd store and just buy what i could with my money and you know, I had a couple mixtapes and then I bought the biohazard tape and I remember seeing their video on something for uh, punishment. And I was like, this is sick. Cause it was like metal dudes. Like the music was metal, but it wasn't like metal metal. It was just heavy. And it just seemed like something I could relate to a little more just by the videos. And then I got uh agnostic front one voice. And that like to this day still is one of my favorite records of all time, but just like looking at the band and just, you know, on the cover and then, listening to that record where it was like pretty heavy but had breakdowns in their lyrics was something I could relate to and then you know between all this I remember my first show I think was either 93 or 94 but my first show was definitely Biohazard at a club called Axis that's no longer there in Boston it was them this band called Stompbox which was like a Boston I'll use hardcore like lightly. They always played with hardcore bands, but I don't know if they were actually a hardcore band. Um, and this band reason enough, uh, that Ian from reach the sky used to sing for back in the day. But that was my first hardcore show. It was 93 and 94. And then, you know, I went with a couple buddies that like kind of told me about it and they're like, you know, be careful. It's kind of wild. And I just remember going and like expecting it to be wild, but not really understanding. And then, you know, 
from the first band to the last band, I was just like, I was hooked because it was wild, but yet, you know, you would see band dudes like on the dance floor or at the bar, just around like opposed to like a metal concert that I was used to. And uh, there was something about that. There was also this like feeling of like, I had no idea how to like mosh, I guess, but like, you know, everybody was moving around. You had no choice but to move around. I know there was an element of like fear, but yet, uh, you could see there was something there that was beyond just like a regular concert, you know, like you could, I don't know. It was something I just wanted to be a part of, but I was hooked from that moment. And from that first show were, uh, things pretty established um, in the scene back then or were shows like happening pretty often or was it like pretty infrequent? Yeah, back then, uh, for Boston, and mind you, I didn't grow up, like, right in the city. I'm actually closer to, I grew up closer to Brockton, okay. which, I mean, by this point, Brockton kind of has a reputation, because it, it, Brockton's like a smaller city, probably about 20 minutes south, 20, 30 minutes south of Boston, and I grew up in a town next to it, but uh, at that point in the 90s, there was, uh, there was definitely a lot of venues, way more than there is now that was doing hardcore shows, so yes, there was shows kind of they weren't easy to find. <clears throat> They'd be like, uh, you know, you'd have to go to like, there was a magazine called the pit report and it was a free magazine. Um, <clears throat> and you would find them at like the, I used to go to strawberries in my town and they would have them there or you could find them in the city. And in the back of it, there would be like club listings and it would show, you know, it would have the next month or so of what bands were playing where. So you, you know, between like getting into hardcore, going to my first show, getting some flyers, getting, bands, tapes, reading thanks lists, and then seeing who was playing where. And I remember back then, too, you could also call the club, like, certain clubs every Sunday, and they would have, like, an audio recording on their, uh, uh, like, on their messages, to, and they would tell you, like, the week or two upcoming shows. So that was another way to, like, find out shows. And, uh, yeah, I would just try to, like, oh, I heard of this band because of this. And, you know, I the kids that, like, brought me to my first show, they, they were a little more into hardcore than I was at the time, but they weren't, like, super into hardcore. So I kind of, like, strayed from them and just kept on buying tapes and reading thanks lists and sending away for zines and doing mail order and trying to learn and find out about as many bands as I could. So there'd be a lot of bands that I like you would hear their name and be like, all right, that sounds like a hardcore band. Or I saw it on a thanks list and I would just go to the show and then get there early and watch all the bands and learn about more bands and buy more seven inches or tapes. And it kind of just trickled from there. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I definitely understand that. Cause I feel like when I first got introduced to it, it was like through my older sister and I just, yeah. uh, you know, kind of fell like in love with it. And I was like, you know, just like a sponge, just like wanting to know everything that Absolutely. I could. And like, yep. and for me, like, you know, obviously the social media was like just starting out. So I was on MySpace, uh, and yeah. I had the, the, the luxury of jumping from like bands, like top eight to top eight. So I, I was able to, uh, Get, gotta remember the top eight yeah the the, the top eight so I, I was able to uh you know kind of figure out about like new music like a lot faster because i feel like you know these days uh music's like way more convenient um versus back then absolutely yeah because yeah which i mean that that seems to be like a topic a lot and like i don't know like i grew up in a certain time and, and obviously like even as a band you know when we started this band like myspace was like pretty important for us but I think every generation has a, you know, like, like you said, nowadays it's super easy to find music. Um, whether it's good or bad, like I had a certain time, you had a certain time, people older than us had their certain time. And I'm sure like every generation older just was tougher and tougher, but it was definitely like, uh, 
however you go about finding it, like you said, just being a sponge and learning about it, whether it's at your fingertips or you got to, you know, read through zines and do mail order, it's still a cool thing if you're all about something. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I still get a kick out of it. Like uh, whenever I, I see people post, uh, you know, new demo links for bands that are like just starting Absolutely. out. Or, or even, um, you know, if, you know, friends of friends will uh, reach out and be like, hey, I've got a new band starting up, like, you know, give it a listen. Like, I'm, I'm down either way because, like, I, I'm always um, open to checking out new music because I, I feel like I'm, I, you know, for me being in it, like, because like my first show was in, like 2002, so um, yep. you know, fast forward to now, I, I still feel like I still have that same passion, and, and I'm always down to hear what you know. Obviously, like uh, the newer generation hardcore is like cooking up, so I I, I, I love it. I, I feel like it's never gotten boring for me. Yeah, same here. Like I, I like you said, it is definitely easier to check out bands whether you know I go through Facebook or Instagram, and somebody you know pops up a link or somebody. I know it's starting a band, you know, it's definitely easier than sending away $3 and waiting six weeks for a demo tape to come in. So it's cool, but I still, I still, you know, try to check out as much as I can because that's just part of my personality and always has been like being in a hardcore, like, you know, just always trying to be aware or check things out, whether you like it or not, it's just, just way easier nowadays. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I think that's awesome. But, uh, just curious, uh, was Death Before Dishonor the first band you started, or did you have um, other bands prior? I had like, I had one band. So at this time, like in Brockton, Brockton had like its own scene, um, and there was like uh, rehearsal studios there that eventually ended up having shows there. They had a club called One Two One, and I think that ended in like the late nineties. But before they started doing shows, uh, a lot of bands like rehearsed there, so. I checked out, like, I ended up working with a dude that was in a band, and it was a band called Brawl Park, which is like a local Boston hardcore band, and they had a studio in Brockton, so I went down there. And then from there, like, I saw that, like, I'm like, oh, I can start a band. Like, I had no talent. Like, I don't know. I was like, I'm going to start a band, and then just rounded up some people, and I started a band. I think it was called, like, Show of Force or something. Like, we practiced a bunch up there we never played a show i think we like recorded something but like just in our practice space which i'd love to find that demo someday um and then from there like i don't know it was just like a couple dudes in a hardcore a couple of regular dudes you know it's, it's just that like when you're younger and and don't have like the social media and stuff and just trying to find dudes like someone be like yeah i'm into playing music and they're more into metal and not hardcore but i did that and then i started this band called no i lied i didn't start it there was this band called incision uh, it was already established and they were rehearsing up there and it was dudes of other bands that I knew. And then they were originally two singers and then they needed me to fill in or end up filling in. And then before I know it, regardless, I ended up singing for that band. And um, I was in that band for like, I want to say like four years maybe. And we ended up like recording a demo with me singing and then we did a full length you know, we played a bunch of shows around here. We did some shows and we traveled a little bit, but more like weekend stuff. Like we played Pennsylvania, a bunch Philly. Um, so like, that was like my first real start with a band and starting to like, understand like how to like meet bands and travel and book shows. And this was like, maybe like 96 to 99 or something like that. And, and then when that band ended me and my drummer of that band started death for dishonor. Oh wow! Okay, so yeah, um, some experience in, in doing a band—that's awesome. 
yeah, and, and that was like, you know, we were fortunate because of where we rehearsed that, that place and that, and at that time we were a band, there was a club there. So, I mean, a lot of bands like Hate Breed played there, Scarhead, Cold as Life. But on top of that, we got to meet like, I know this band from uh, Philly area called Dysphoria. They were touring a lot of the time. So like, you know, they would give us a show in Philly. It was a lot of like, uh, just meeting bands and networking. You know what I mean? So we were kind of fortunate and then we got to play out a little bit and kind of like, I don't know. I was, this band was kind of established, but not doing much, but they were already like had members. And then I came into it and then it just kind of ended where we were all super young. And then me, I personally wanted to do something different. So I started Death for Dishonor. My drummer from my old band ended up playing for us. But like at first he was a little bit hesitant because that old band just was kind of a pain in the ass. But and uh, how did you find the, the it was probably uh, like we started like 2000 or something like that and uh, how'd you recruit the the other members for death before dishonor it's kind of weird so we at that studio there's a bunch of bands there's a band called league of pain up there they broke up like around the same time incision broke up so i wanted to start a band i got the guitarist from league of pain that wanted to start a band and then like i said my drummer wasn't he was like, I'm not playing drums anymore. I kept on harassing him every week. So I'm like, you got to play drums. So in the meantime, we had a rehearsal studio. We were trying out drummers. We actually tried out Frankie, who is, you know, like our probably last original member besides me. But we tried him out on drums, and he was like horrible. <laughs> but I guess we he was just happened to be playing drums in another room. And he's like, I can play drums. He'll tell you he told me he can't play drums, but he was playing drums. He came in, he couldn't hold a beat. Like, get out of here. Eventually, my drummer, my old drummer said he would play, so we got him, and then I called Frankie to look for a bass player, because Frankie was a little younger, but I knew him from just, you know, being around, and he was like, oh, I play bass, and I'm like, dude, if you play bass like you play drums, like, just don't waste my time. I'm like, and I couldn't say this to him now, because he's probably like seven times bigger than me, and probably smash for skull, but back then, I'm like, all right, dude, you can try out for bass, but if you suck like drums, I'm beating you up and taking your stuff. Oh, okay. This, this is just dumb. Like, I wasn't serious, but I was just, I was convinced. But come to find out, the kid was, like, going to school for, like, jazz bass and came up and he, like, just shredded on bass. So that's how Death Before Dishonor got together. And then, I mean, plenty of member changes, but that that's basically how we started. And then from there, you know, we wrote a demo and recorded a demo. And that was, like, 2000. Started playing shows around here. Uh doing a lot of weekends basically it was all the connections that we made with our older band uh, other bands you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. and then um then in like 2001 we no no that was we've, i always say we started we started you know in 2001 we recorded a demo so that's when i consider the band starting but we obviously were putting the band together before that so 2001 we recorded demo played shows and then like 2002 we did like true death and, you know I don't know. Our history is weird. We've had like plenty of member changes and I, I'll never discredit the earlier years of Death Force Honor, but I really feel like in 2005 when we did like Friends Who Me Forever is when we like became like a, like a real band in a way. Okay. So just curious. So, um, when you released True Till Death, uh, how did you feel the reception was for the band? Cause obviously, you know, we talked about you guys made it into that DVD, 
um, which you know came out in 2004. But uh, when you guys first uh, came out, was the scene out there in Boston pretty receptive to you guys, or did it take a minute for people to catch on? It took a little bit. Like the the scene in Boston was like a little more. It sounds corny to say, but like it was a little tougher to crack. Like getting on shows in Boston, there was a lot of places there were. You know, in the 2000s, there wasn't as many in the early 90s. But like shows in Boston were great, but uh, there wasn't as many as before. So, you know, it was just harder to get on shows. And there was a lot of bands in Boston. So I feel like it took a little bit for us to really click, but we did a lot better in like the suburbs and stuff like that. Brockton, we always did really well, which is just like a sub scene of Boston. Um, you know, we started playing shows. We started playing out of state. I think in like 2003, we like flew to California and did like five or six shows. Like Mikey Hood booked the whole thing. Like, we had all these connections, but, like, really starting to break in Boston, it took a little bit. Maybe it was, like, 2002, 2003. We started getting on more and more shows in Boston. Like, there was a club called Bill's Bar that did a lot of shows on Lansdowne Street, but they only did them on, like, Monday nights. And, you know, we started doing well there. Then we got put on bigger shows on the weekend. But it took a little bit. I would say it took a couple of years to really, like, catch on in Boston. I always felt like we were kind of... uh like underdogs in a way like things were never really easy for us but it taught us to just like work hard and keep on playing and play in front of as many people and as many different people as we could okay so uh, last thing about uh, true till death uh, as of right now um it's not on like um, spotify because that's the uh, service that i have so I, I went and looked and um it's not on there is there like, any chance you guys will put it on spotify or is it just gonna have to you know absolutely no i like so i mean out of off of that record and that record we recorded in 2002, mm-hmm. put out in 2002. And it's like, like I said, I'll never discredit all that stuff we did. And I, you know, we still play Trudel Death every now and then, the song Trudel Death. We don't play much else off that record. Um, but I still, I never take away that time in a band. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, but it was definitely like the early years and a lot of like learning how to write. But I still love that stuff. But uh, with that said, that came out on Spook City and Spook City is like not a label anymore. But next year will be, 20 years since that came out. So definitely have been talking about maybe releasing like just like a limited vinyl. I don't think it, you know, it'd be a big to do, but definitely getting it maybe remastered and just putting it up on like Spotify or like, you know, all the um, streaming platforms just to have it out there. Cause I know it's not out there. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad uh, you're um, aware that it's not out there and um, you know, you have some plans at least in place and you know, hopefully in the future it'll, it'll make it on there. Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, where it was like, I figured like next year would be the 20th year. So I was thinking of like taking that in the first demo and like putting it together. And I don't know. I don't know if like a label will do it or will just do it. Um, you know, I still talk to like my original drummer and Frankie that was our original bass player. He's still kind of in the band. He just doesn't tour anymore because he's got a kid and a real job. But I still talk to those dudes. Um, and we have talked about that. So I, I think we'll just do something. Cool. Like I said, I'm not really concerned about like the vinyl aspect. I might just do, you know, a few hundred, just, uh, uh, juicy Joel that did the artwork for the original, um, true to death. He's still one of my close friends and he's from clench fist. Um, and he always talks how he wants to redo that artwork cause it was so long ago and he's phenomenal at artwork. So we might do a cool, you know, vinyl release and, and definitely throw the demo on there. And like I said, I, I it'll be next year, but we definitely have plans for doing that. Okay, awesome. And you you mentioned um, Bridge Nine. I, I was curious. Uh, you know, you guys put out um, you know a, a bunch of records with them. Uh, How did you guys link up with them and build that relationship? Absolutely. Uh, so 
around the time like the Boston beatdown, whatever that was like. So that was after Trudel Death. Um, Might have we did Trudel Death. And I think we did a split with Nourish of Flame, this band from North Carolina, and then you know we started doing well in Boston, and then our friends are like, "Hey, we're putting out this Boston beatdown." <laughs> I'm like, "All right," and it's definitely like controversial. So we're like, "Well." No publicity, bad publicity, better than no publicity. And it was our friends, like, you know, we were on it. Obviously, it's not like we were, like, nervous about it, but, like, being somewhat of a new band, we don't want people being like, oh, these dudes are just assholes. But whatever, we did it. And honestly, like, that DVD kind of took off, so that helped a little bit. Um, definitely helped internationally, which is a weird thing. I mean, first time we went to Europe, there's a well-known record store in Berlin called Cortex Records. And this is 2005. I know I'm jumping ahead, but going back to the Boston beatdown, I remember walking down the street and that store was just littered in posters like all over the window for the Boston beatdown. It was the most weirdest thing to be in like Berlin, Germany. And the, even the dudes working there were wearing like welcome to Boston shirts. It's pretty ironic. It was funny. Um, so anyways, so we're getting closer to like recording friends to me forever. And we got like the music written and like, you know, we're maturing a little bit as a band and, we after doing a bunch of you know in between 2001 and 2005 like we did a bunch of weekends we went to the west coast and we were like we want to tour we want to be like a real band i don't know if we knew how to do that but so i reached out to a bunch of the labels that kind of got snuffed and then bridge nine actually responded and chris was like and chris was pretty honest uh he was not the biggest fan of like the recording of trudel death and i don't disagree it was just so long ago but he came out to a show to check us out live and was like super impressed. And we sat and talked and he heard like some of the demos for Friends Winning Forever. And we just linked up with him and he was very honest from the moment, you know, and I knew who Chris was. I mean, he's been going to shows forever in Boston and I knew Bridge Nine. And uh, we kind of linked up with him and then we went in the studio to record Friends Winning Forever. And that was like, we probably recorded in 04 because I think it came out in the spring of two, spring or of 2005 and the rest is history we like just started touring like non-stop when, even like right before that record came out it was kind of wild yeah and uh, I, I was just curious uh, you guys did a reissue like the, the following year and yeah so alright so Friends Family Forever was just the seven songs which mm-hmm. and back then like the music industry was like a lot more uh, weird about stuff so that was technically an EP Right, so it wasn't okay. a full length, and so we go into like '05 like crazy, like tour after tour after tour, and Chris is like, we we're kind of talking, and just to keep the ball rolling, he was like, we should reissue this with other stuff, so it'd be considered an LP, just so like it would get a little more recognition, like within like the music industry, because EPs were like not as important as an LP, and almost to like continue us touring because we haven't. You know, you put out this EP and things are going great. We're on the road. We're not writing. We're just touring. So, you know, we figured we'd re-release it, give us a little more uh, steam, and it also would be, like, recognized a little better by uh, bigger booking agents and stuff like that, just being a full length. So what do we put a couple live tracks on it and a couple B-sides or something like that? I don't even remember. I think it's, like, live from CBGBs on there or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so we just did that to kind of like buy some time and keep us touring since we had so much like momentum going. And, uh, you know, I, I find that really interesting, uh, about like the whole, like, um, you know, certain number of tracks with the EP, um, versus right. like a, a full length. Cause I, 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 I'm not even sure. Like do 
bands these days still like take that into account do bands even care about that stuff anymore because i feel like obviously like the landscape's like totally different yeah so back then like it was one of those and, and i could be like a little wrong but from everything i remember being told and i'm not i mean i know a bunch of stuff i handle a lot of the uh ins and outs of death floor sauna but i'm no way know everything but if i remember correctly you know a certain amount of minutes let's say like you know 14 minutes and under i i don't know the exact term is an ep and whatever over i mean it's lp and like so back then like it's almost like if you didn't have an lp certain distributors wouldn't pick it up there's just a lot more like rules and regulations where now where the music industry and labels and all that stuff has shifted to like online pr- platforms and stuff like that all those things don't really matter uh mm-hmm. not to jump ahead but like even our last record is technically i think it just makes what would be an lp but you know me and chris were going back and forth and if this was 10 years ago he'd be concerned with how many songs are on it opposed to now and not concerned for himself but concerned for how he can distribute the record you know what i mean yeah um but yeah, a lot of that stuff now is by the wayside because the music industry, like within labels and distributors and like how people recognize things are totally different. Yeah, you can literally, and you can even go back and like edit records, which is like cool and crazy at the same time. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, yeah, things are so different from like, and that's not that long ago. I mean, 2005 till now, like considering, you know what I mean? Like in mm-hmm. the, times of music it's like not that long ago and back then there definitely was like you know someone would be like all right why would you want to do an ep we can only invest x amount of money in it because distributors will only pick up some of these and where if it's a full length you can do ads and this and that where now it's like you barely take ads out in magazines like what magazines are left not that there isn't any but there isn't what there was in 2005 you know what i mean like yeah no for sure I, I, I totally get that but yeah, it, it definitely is uh, crazy to think about. Cause I, I remember uh, when like, you know, technology started shifting and smartphones started becoming a thing. I yep. actually used to actually be concerned with the um, uh, memory in my phone. Cause I was like, okay, like I have to yep. be able to fit like my entire library of hardcore music, even though like, you yep. know, realistically I only listen to like, you know, maybe like in rotation, like, you know, five or six albums. But, um, for some reason I just wanted you to have, get it all on there. Exactly. I, I wanted to have access to everything at, at all times. So that like, you know, really mattered to me. But then, uh, you know, uh, fast forward, the streaming services start coming out and I'm like, wow, like I'm actually like pretty intrigued. Cause, um, I was like, this saves me all the space. I don't need any space because I just have to download this one app and everything is, you know, from their servers. And obviously it was like, uh, like a slow start in the very beginning because it was like a new thing. But like, um, today, like, uh, it's, I, I feel like it's weird if your band isn't on a streaming service. I agree. Like I, I even, I think I got into the streaming thing a little late. Like I, I, I understood Spotify and stuff like that. I mean, I was always just like buy a CD or, you know, and then I remember like, Oh, I want to check this out. Do you like Spotify? And I'm like, I'm not paying for this. And then I eventually did. I, you know, I, I, my old band did like a reunion. I had to like learn a cover song. So I'm like, damn it. I don't have that CD. So I was, I paid for Spotify and I was like, this is so cool. Everything's at my fingertips. I don't need my iPod. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was like blown away. I mean, I remember from tapes to CDs. I'd be like, why would I get a CD? It's so bulky. I don't want a disc man. I just want a Walkman. It's just funny how like music evolves, but I, I totally agree. I think it's, 
it's a wild world that everything is just at your fingertips, but yet pretty damn cool. Yeah, but also strange at the same time, vinyl is still super popular. CDs have kind of faded away and tapes yep. are still kind of like like a niche thing. I feel like some people are, are into them, but they're not as popular as like vinyl, which. Uh, right, right. Yeah, they have a little they made like a little resurgence where, you know, bands are doing like little limited tape runs, which I think are cool. But I think I think vinyl is always like I mean, vinyl besides like a track was like the original type of format kind of. And then you got to figure within hardcore that was the go-to media till cds and even when cds they're still doing vinyl but vinyl definitely like never went away but definitely made a comeback i would like a really strong comeback maybe i don't know at this point 10 15 years ago and i feel like it's not going anywhere and there's something about holding that vinyl and like having a bigger layout than even a cd and i don't know i think it's cool yeah no i i, I think it's a definitely um uh like a cool thing to have because obviously um people still spin their records but uh it's always awesome when bands do go that extra step and have like a special like cool insert or do like a special cover and uh, you know gives a little more incentive to pick up that vinyl i agree i think like i mean i also come from that like generation of buying cds and or tapes to cds and whatever so you know i'll still listen to the band if it's just on a streaming platform, but there is something to be said about like grabbing a record and like actually reading the lyrics, even if you're not playing the record, which I would still play a record, but you know, it's cool to have it and see a cool layout and thanks list. I don't know. just kind of like flashback to my like childhood and something that I always liked, you know, getting into hardcore and stuff like that. So it's definitely cool when bands still do that. Okay. So I have three, uh, Deathport is hundred stories, but I, I kind of want to spread them out. So I want to tell you the first sure. one right now. Um, back in the day, um, my buddy Steve Kipple used to book shows, um, and I made friends with these guys out in Denver. They used to play in a band called In the Crosshairs, and then uh, turned yep. into Fight Like Hell. And yep. Uh, you know, just being a fan of their music and seeing them as much as I can whenever they went out on tour, um, uh, they were on their last tour and, uh, you know, friends with, uh, you know, the singer, um, you know, both bass players they had, um, you know, the drummer Memphis, who I, I know, you know, yep. um, and uh, just being friends with them, uh, they invited like, you know, me, my buddy Andrew, my, my friend Bobby out to Denver to go to the last show. And I was like, oh, shit, this is crazy. Like, I've never been to Denver for anything. So this is going to be like a, a, an yep. exciting trip. And they they were like super gracious, you know, put us up for like a week. Um, you know, and then we went to the show and obviously, um, you guys play that show. Do you remember that yep. night? Yeah. Is that, was that the, what was that place? Sox place? Uh, no, I, I think this one was at the, the Marquee theater. The Marquee. Okay. Yeah. All right. That one. Yeah. 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 yeah so, so right. Sox place was before that. My bad. No, no, it's all good. And I, I remember it being like a, like kind of like bittersweet. Cause like, you know, uh, fight like hell was breaking up, but like, you know, Memphis was, uh, you know, going to join. Death oh, so you're talking about the last fight like hell show. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The last. Yes, like okay. Show. I remember I got, when you were saying in the crosshairs and I know you mentioned fight like hell and I was just thinking of the last, cause they said a place fell socks place. We them. But all right, back to your story. I remember this now. Okay. Yeah. So, I remember it just being bittersweet because um, I, I didn't want Violet Hell to, to break up, but I was like, whatever, like, you know, it, um, you know, I guess it had to happen at some point. But then um, you know, right. just knowing that Memphis was going on to play with you guys, I, I thought it was like super awesome and uh, cool for him. And I, I remember, you know, seeing you guys that night at that show. And I, I thought it was like an awesome uh, set, uh, you know, for you guys and everybody else that played that night. Absolutely. I remember that. Yeah, it was great. Uh, Fight Like Hell was always like, we toured with, I mean, we played in Denver a bunch of times at, that place called Sox Place. They, Marquee was like the bigger venue, but they used to have like that DIY spot called Sox Place. Okay. Where 
Memphis Book Shows and let's see, let's see, I forget his name, but uh, place was awesome. So we always had a connection with Memphis and Fight Like Hell. Those dudes were always great, and you know we did a full U.S. tour in '08 with them. Yeah, it was like Black My Heart, us, or it was '07 maybe. It was like when Comey and came out, but we brought Fight Like Hell on that tour and always got along with them. And I remember it was a weird time, and I forget how it went down because always I got along great with Memphis. Memphis is a great drummer. We needed a drummer and didn't want to like break up by like hell by any means, but Memphis was kind of like wanted to do more. And mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I don't want to speak for fight like hell, but I mean, to this day, I mean, Memphis isn't there anymore, but it was great. Um, I, I do remember that show that that was the last fight like hell show. Um, but yeah, dude, all those dudes in fight like hell were great dudes and Memphis is a great dude. And we always had a great connection with Denver. So that's a cool story. I forgot about that. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's awesome. But okay, so uh you guys put out Friends Family Forever and then you know, fast yep. fast forward, um you guys put out uh Count Me In. Can you talk about uh, Yeah uh what what uh, That was oh seven? Yes. Uh, so yeah, so we put out Friends Family Forever literally like even two months before that we lucked out and got on a European tour with Agnostic Front. Like crazy story like our record was recorded Bridge Island was kind of like sending it out to people but it wasn't like pressed yet and then somebody in Europe got it Terror cancelled off of the Agnostic Front tour last minute for you know they had personal issues like not with Agnostic Front just some band issues whatever mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't even know them but we got hit up and someone was like yo you want to go to Europe for the Agnostic Front for six weeks but you have to be there in ten days Mind you, we've never left this country. We only went to California once for like a week. And other than that, just like weekend warriors. And I was like, yeah, this is the moment we wait for. So we just like had to get passports, get, you know, Bridge Nine helped us get plane tickets. But anyways, we ended up going to Europe with Ignacio for like six weeks. Uh, that was our first tour. And Friends Family Forever came out in the middle of that. So that was our first exposure there. Agnostic Front was super awesome. And they were come. they just had, um, what was that record called? Another Voice House. That was still five. And then they had a full U.S. tour when they were coming back to the States. And they had a couple bands drop off. So they asked us to do it. And then, so we just kept on touring and never stopped. And then 07, we did Count Me In. Uh, and then never stopped. Just kept on touring then. So uh, that's a crazy story. Uh, 10 days notice and having to go to Europe, obviously. Um, for six weeks. <laughs> yeah, for six weeks. That's a like lengthy um, period of time. But obviously, um, you guys uh, individually have your own lives. Like, was it easy for everybody to just kind of pick up and go on 10 days notice to be gone for that long? Yeah, kind of, I mean, like me and my guitarist at the time worked the same job. Uh, I don't know what Frankie was doing. And my drummer had a job. But we always kept in the back. Like, our whole goal was to put out Friends Winning Forever and end up becoming, like, we wanted to tour as much as possible. So we were just, we just knew, like, if an opportunity arose, we were going to take it. So when I got that phone call, you know, I obviously called the band and we're like, yeah, absolutely. Um, none of us had kids. You know, I mean, we were young. So we were like, yep, see you later. Quit our jobs. I think my drummer's boss was cool. and was like, you can come back to work. Maybe even my boss is cool. But, like, once we went to Europe and then in Europe, they're like, Oh, another, like basically go home for a week and then another six week tour in the U S. So like, all right, we just quit our jobs and just, just toured. That's insane. But that, that's awesome. That it was, uh, you know, that all just kind of worked out that way. And you guys kind of got to, um, you know, do something that you wanted to achieve as a band. Absolutely. Like, I mean, like we, 
like I said, we had it in our head that if we got opportunities, we we're going to take it. So it's kind of, it was like a no brainer and yeah, we just rolled with it. Like that's something we always wanted to do. And we had been a band, you know, for a few years already. So it's like, we did the weekend stuff. We did a little bit of touring, but we we're like, all right. And then, yeah, we went from like 2006 to like 2009. We did like between 200 and 250 shows a year. It was pretty insane. Yeah. Okay. Are, are you ready for my second death board dishonor story? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, there's a guy out in Yuma, Arizona. His name's Jeff Yuma. Are you are you familiar with him? Outdoor space. Oh, I'm sorry. What's that? Uh, are are you familiar with uh, Jeff? Yuma? Uh, you said Jeff from Yuma. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he used to do the Prison Hill shows, right outside. Yes, he did. Okay, so Prison Hill. Uh, Jeff Yuma books uh, Death Before Dishonor and my band uh, back in the day. Um, we were called Final Phase, and okay, a- and at the time, uh, you know, uh, there was daylight savings. But um, you know, me being an idiot, I didn't realize that Arizona, that part of um, Arizona Yuma, they didn't do the time change. So right. So my band leaving California to head to Yuma. I'm thinking we're on time and we're about like halfway through the drive. Jeff calls me and he, he's like, yo, where are you? And I, I tell him, like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm on the way to the show. Like, what's up? And he's like, dude, you're late. Like, we don't do the time change. And like my heart just sank because I, I wanted to be professional. Uh, you know, Jeff's my friend and, you know, he um, yeah. always did us a favor by um, booking us um, on cool shows. So he was like, shit. He's like, all right. He's like, just, just, just still come uh, like, you know, like we're, we're still going to pay you, but you have to headline. And I'm just like, oh, great. Like headline, like nobody's going to want to see <laughs> us. So we're like, all right, fuck it. Like, like we're already halfway to the show, so we're not going to turn around. So like, you know, we absolutely. So we're, you know, proceed to get to the show and like we're all just bummed because we're like, OK, nobody's going to be there. Like this is going to suck. Like, you know, we drove all the way for, for basically nothing. So we show up and set up and to my surprise like whatever i like you know the two or three of my friends from yuma were still there but you guys death for dishonor you guys still stuck around um and yeah. and just watched and i you know that just kind of blew my mind because in my mind i was like okay they're gonna look at us as being these rude guys like they're not even gonna stick around but you guys were nice enough to stick around and just watch us play and i was like okay Absolutely. that's that's pretty awesome so like that, that always like stuck out to me yeah dude i mean hey like first and foremost I'm a hardcore kid, man. And I totally get, like, being in a band, all right, so you fucked up on the time thing. Like, that's like, we're not, like, experts. We're just kids. Like, we're supposed to fuck up. We're supposed to show up late. So I totally get showing up late. I mean, there's plenty of times we've had to show up late because of, like, band action and stuff like that. But we also, like, I mean, we try to be, don't get me wrong, like, after 250 days a year, it gets a little bit crazy. But I still, to this day, I still try to check out every band, whether they're playing before us or after us, just because, like, I don't know, dude. That's kind of what was always like instilled in me as far as going to shows. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And and you know th- that that was cool. And you know, like I said, that, that always stuck out to me, and that kind of showed me that you guys are you know not some rock stars. You guys are actually like you know true like you know down hardcore guys. Absolutely, that's cool. Yeah, I I remember Prison Hill, and I like 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 I said at this point, my memory is so shot. So I remember certain things. I remember that outdoor spot. I remember playing. I remember being kind of a cool show. Uh, I remember hanging out there. Everybody was awesome. You know, and that's one of the things, even to this day, as much as all the touring we've done, it's like, there's something about just like, even if it's a small show and the people that booked the show and the bands we were playing with where everybody's just cool. Like, it just feels so normal as like a hardcore kid instead of playing like, yeah, we've been fortunate enough to play big festivals and stuff like that. And I'll never take away how cool that is, but it's a different type of feel opposed to just like, 
some kids putting on a show in the middle of, you know, that's why we say like when people get worried about things with hardcore, especially like nowadays with everything in the world, I mean, but hardcore will always prevail because someone will find a hall, a basement or a big venue and kids will always love hardcore. So we'll figure something out. That's my rant for the moment. But yeah, that's just us, man. I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, there's been these like secret shows that have been going on during the pandemic. I, I don't know if any of those yep. have like crossed your radar. Uh, I Well, I knew one that happened uh, in Pittsburgh. I know like Shadowrealm played. Um, okay. at this dude, AJ has, I don't know if you know AJ, he has like a preserving hardcore. It's called, Preser- it's like a museum. I haven't been there yet. I've known AJ forever. He used to book shows in Pittsburgh forever, but, uh, and he's in that band face wreck. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's, he's got like a, it's like a museum slash record store. And in the basement he does show. So I know they did like a secret show out there. I've heard of stuff here and there. Um, I don't know. It's weird. Like, part of me wants to just play a show. Part of me is trying to be like a conscious person, and part of me is like I don't even know what to believe anymore. But yeah, I've heard of shows popping up here and there, which it's hardcore. It's gonna happen. Yeah, I was. Like, uh, I wasn't so surprised that that it happened. I, I think I was more surprised that it actually uh, actually like went over well for the, I, I saw like some yeah, like a on, good amount of people there. You mean? Yeah. 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 And like, yeah. It, I, I heard the same thing in Pittsburgh. Like there was a good turnout and I was like, I think that's one. I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, I think that's definitely the, uh, interesting aspect. Yeah. And, and it, it, it definitely is pretty interesting. Cause obviously we are all kind of in the same boat where there's like, you know, no hardcore shows happening. And, and I've said this before on, on the podcast, but it, yeah, it's just like, it's like this one thing that um, we're all experiencing at the same time, because usually it's yep. not, that's not the, the fact with hardcore, like, you know, like a new band will drop, but not everybody likes that band. So, you know, like part of the scene will check right. out, part of the scene won't. But like this thing that's going on right now with no shows, like we're all experiencing it at the same time. And it's just like this strange thing. And like, you know, as long as I, I've been going to shows, like it, I, I haven't gone this long without going to one. So it's selling weird times right now. I agree wholeheartedly with you. You're absolutely, yeah, you're right. Cause there'll be like, Oh, a certain venue can't do shows or a certain city doesn't have shows for a while, but like you can find a hardcore show. This is, it's a good perspective. Cause it's the first time like everybody's experiencing something the same. And it's like, <laughs> this goes back to my comic. Cause I'm like, all right, shut down all the show. Like, you know, Boston's always had a problem with venues just because it's a college city. So, you know, if you have a cool club, it'll get bought out by the universities and become a condo complex or apartments, you know? But I'll always say like, oh, well, we'll find a basement or a hall. This time it's like, but like when it gets back, like to a point where it's normal to go to a show, it's kind of scary because it's like, you almost like take it for granted when there's so many shows and you miss shows and you're like, ah, I've seen this band a month ago and now you're like, fuck, it's been like, months since i've been to a show this is insane and like you said everybody's experience and it's kind of crazy yeah and i i guess it kind of opens everybody's eyes too to to not kind of take it for granted because I've, I've definitely been in that spot i i grew up in the palm spring area, the palm springs area and 
uh, yep. growing up there wasn't uh like a consistent flow of shows so uh, right my, my friends and i we'd have to travel out west to go to corona or to um, la to, to yep. hit shows and I, I always uh dreamed of moving out closer to shows so i could not have to do the you know two hour drive home at like midnight and be super tired right to be tired yeah yeah but um you know growing well what I, I grew up and then i eventually moved out of the area and moved to orange county where there's you know uh, where there was shows happening uh you know everywhere million shows yeah, yeah. so i i kind of got to the point where i was like okay damn like i, I started getting like like complacent and started getting kind of lazy and not really going to as many as i used to but um, but I kind of flipped that around because like no I was like I, I can't get in that that mindset because there's going to be bands that I'm going to miss or uh, you know I'm, I'm not going to want to uh, you know just let things kind of just like pass me by so I, I started going to more like as many shows as, as I could. That's cool. Yeah, it's hard because like when you get you know I I grew up in Boston and there's been times where and like when I said in Boston I mean I'm closer to Boston now I'm like five minutes ten minutes from Boston but you know once I have a car and I can and for me so we had like Boston and all the suburbs. And then we also had Providence is only like 40 minutes away from us, which isn't far. I used to go to a lot of shows when I was younger in Providence, uh, just because the club there was all ages when certain ones here would be 18 plus. But, you know, in Worcester is a part of Massachusetts, but it's like, you know, Western Mass, they have their own scene. Like, you know, it's kind of like being in Southern California. There's just shows everywhere. And on top of being in a band playing, granted, in the last five years, we're not playing like 200 shows a year, but you're still doing a tour here and there and playing shows. But you definitely take it for granted because, you know, I mean, I'm the type of guy I'll go on tour and I'll come home and when there's a show, I still go and hang out. And then all of a sudden when it's taken away from you, it's like, like, I can't play a show. I can't go to a show. And that's like what I've done my whole life. It's kind of fucking crazy. And uh, do you remember the last show you went to before the whole uh, quarantine set in? If we played, we were... Quarantine started, like, for us, I want to say, like, it was, like, March 16th or something, right? Like, around mid-March is yeah. kind of where everything... So, we were in California with Madball end of February. Like, the last show we played Madball was, like, Berkeley on March 3rd. And then we did a couple shows. We played, we played Sacramento ourselves. We went to Portland, Oregon, and we went to Seattle. And I remember playing Seattle because the coronavirus started getting like that. The first 10 cases of deaths were in Washington and we played like the same night in Seattle. And granted it was at like a elderly home. And I remember being kind of sick too and being like, shit, I hope I can fly home. So the last show I went to is a show we played and cause I came home and then literally a week later, everything was in lockdown. That's insane. Damn. And when you were uh, sick uh, up in Seattle, did you have any thoughts that maybe you got it? I I didn't think so. And also, it, like, the information wasn't as crazy as, like, you know, I, I saw what was going on. And, you know, I have a lot of friends internationally, so I kind of saw what was going on internationally because more stuff was happening there than here. Mm-hmm. But then you start hearing the cases, and I'm like, oh, cool, we're playing Seattle tonight, 10 deaths in Washington. And you start seeing the numbers on the West Coast rise while we're out there. But I, I remember, and this is just typical touring, like, we played Chain Reaction, and then we had to go to uh, Bakersfield. And we had to be in Bakersfield early. So was it Bakersfield or the, one of the shows we played? So anyways, we had to get out of Southern California. So we drove right before like the mountain range. We got like a cheap motel. And I remember turning on the AC and it just, you could smell the mold. And I'm like, I'm going to wake up sick. And I woke up sick, which is just typical like 
coming from Boston in February, going to California where it's warm, not taking care of yourself because you're on the road, and then sleeping like shit. But I wasn't, I wasn't concerned that I had coronavirus, but I was more concerned like if I got to the airport and they try to like quarantine me for two weeks, and I mm. wanted to just go home. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just like a typical like sore throat, cold. But like, I ended up getting through the airport fine. But yeah, so I mean that run was actually really cool. So like, and, and the last show at Madball in that run. It was the first time Madball played Gilman, and first time we played Gilman, and that show was absolutely insane. So, I guess I was kind of fortunate that it ended on that high note. Yeah, well, hopefully that's not the the, the last of it. Yeah, I, I more. didn't end it on it because I mean I'm yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I mean we're, dude, we at least for us, uh, you know, we we've obviously been doing nothing, but in the last like month or so, like things are opening up in mass slowly. Um, you know, we've been getting together and rehearsing every other week and writing stuff. So, I mean, we've been kind of getting together. We're not obviously knowing that there's no shows like coming up, but just to get like the fact that we can get together and kind of write and take this time. And, you know, cause we went two or three, two months before we could get together and practice. So we've been kind of chipping away at it. Okay. So, uh, you guys were on this schedule from uh, releasing Friends Family Forever. It, it seemed like you were kind of keeping consistent with this like two-year gap, yep. then Count Me In, the other two-year gap, and then we get to Better Ways to Die, which yep. um, which was awesome. And I, I, I thought that was uh, you know a great record. And I, I was just curious, is that was that by design? You guys were trying to keep this busy schedule with like, like you know uh, like a new record every two years, or is that just like you know by chance yeah. that it happened? I kind of feel like that's like the typical like you're touring all the time. Like you're supposed to put on a record every two years. Like it's not two years to the point, but like, you know what I mean? Like you see the bands that are, you know, Tara puts out a record every couple of years. It's just kind of like, this goes back to like back then and like being like music industry standard, but you also tour so much in two years. You like, you got to put out a new record to kind of like keep that momentum going or gain new momentum. So, and better ways to die. Like, that, that we actually, I think we took a little time. Like, Count Me In, we just kind of wrote on the fly. You know, we'd have a week off from a tour. We'd write here and there. Uh, Better Ways to Die was a little different because Memphis was in the band. And he was living, I don't know if he moved out of Denver yet and moved to South Carolina with his mom. But whatever, he had to, like, fly out here. So we, like, it was the first time we, like, took time to, like, write. Like, all right, we're not going to tour for these this month and we're going to write. And uh, we recorded that. And we put a lot of time into that and I was psyched on that record and then put it out. And then I just feel like, I think all the years of touring and every dumb thing we did just caught up to us. Like, I don't know how it unfolded, but like, you know, I remember Memphis quit touring. He was just done with touring and he's great, great friend. I mean, we, we had two drums, no, one drummer before Memphis, me and my original drummer. You know, we had been through a couple member changes. I feel like this, if you're going to tour so much, um, it's really hard to keep a lineup because just that lifestyle just takes a lot out of you. And then if you end up having kids or want to get married or, you know, buy a house, being in a hardcore band, you can't, you don't, you can't guarantee income, even if you're madball. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, we, we, we put out Better Ways to Die. We're still touring. I think Memphis quit. And not like, in a bad way, just like, hey man, I'm done touring, you know, we gotta find a new drummer. And then Frankie quit. Frankie ended up getting married and then, then he was having a kid, so he had to stop touring. So he never really quit, but he's like, dude, I can't tour anymore. And Frankie's was like the last original member. Frankie's written probably 90% of the music. 
uh, up to this point. So that was kind of like a blow, but, and that's like my right hand man, you know what I mean? So that was like a big blow, but he was like, you know, I still want to be a part of the band. I just can't tour. I'm having a kid. I have to get a real job. I got to buy a house, which I totally understand. So I think, you know, and trying to figure out member changes and we were still touring. It just got to the point where you take so much time trying to find new members and then do some tours, see if they work out. Next thing you know, you do another tour and you're not focusing on writing and that leads into the 10 year gap for a new record in a weird way. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, you guys put out better ways to die and I, I, I thought it was awesome. And then, as Thank time, you. um, you're welcome. And as, as time went on, obviously like, you know, you, you guys would um, still like pop up here and there, but then I, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I felt like the, the, the 10 years kind of snuck up on me. And when I kind of like sat back, yeah, same here. I mean, <laughs> being in the band, it's like, you know, like I said, so you go through a couple member changes and you know, it's weird because looking back now, like my guitarist Colin, he's been in the band for, eight almost nine years because he was one of the replacements when we kind of went through our you know losing memphis losing frankie to torn losing b-roll losing rob you know we lost some members and it was all like here and there but you know even for me so even when i you know colin's been in the band for like eight nine years and then my drummer ben he's been in the band at this point for like seven years maybe even eight so we kind of had a lineup but then we're still touring, but not like crazy. Like we're doing, uh, you know, it's trickling down to like one or two tours a year. It's still playing shows like in the Northeast, but even for me, like touring caught up with me, you know, you kind of break that cycle and then you go through the member changes and then it's like, you know, I had some personal stuff going on. My dad was sick. Uh, I ended up getting married. Just, you know, real life kind of hit me too. So next thing you know, you're like, oh, it's been 10 years, but we're still a band. You know, we never took like any, did we tour like crazy now, but we never actually were like, all right, we're not touring this year. We just kind of picked and choose a little bit. You know what I mean? And like I said, we still would play around here. We'd still play Philly. We would play New York. Cause you know, being in the Northeast, you can go anywhere in a four or five hour radius, no problem. And we'd go to Europe here and there, but you know, I think touring all that time burnt me out going through member changes, you know, you live a certain way. And then it's like, you know, and all of a sudden we have like, have this new lineup and it's crazy because we put out unfinished business last year which was 10 years from better ways to die but even the first song on that record we wrote like seven years ago so we were like always wanted to do a new record it's just to be the toured and my guitarist lives in western mass not that that's crazy but it's like an hour and a half away so um just getting together would always be a little bit tough but our focus was never putting out a record and then next thing you know it's like oh 10 years weird so I feel you on the sneaking up. <laughs> yeah, and uh, at any point in that uh, ten-year gap, uh, was there any thought that like, okay, maybe better ways to die is it? You guys are just gonna step away, or I never felt that. I never. I always was like, all right, I'm gonna keep the band going. Frankie always wanted me to keep the band going. Um, you know, we got Colin in the band, and he's like a fantastic guitar player and songwriter. Um, and he was always like, let's do a new record. We got Ben in the band. Ben's like, let's do a new record. And we were writing songs. And so we always wanted to do a new record. We would just, it was weird. Like we were like slowing down from touring, but yet we would take a tour and then come home and be like, all right, we'll get together in a month just because we're on a tour. And like I said, personal stuff. So we never, we were never not going to do a new record. We just never had like that kick in the ass to finally get it done. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that. And like I would, 
I, I would talk to British Island and be like, all right, dude, next year we're going to do the This happened like four years in a row. So I'd be like, Chris, we'll put out a record next year. Big like, awesome. We'd talk about it and then just never get it done. And was it uh, kind of, um, were they like welcoming when it finally did happen, like 10 years later? Because obviously you guys did put the record out through um, Bridge Nine. And uh, the fact that they were still with you guys after so long, I, I think that's pretty awesome. So was it like an easy process to kind of get back in there with them and uh, release Unfinished Business? Absolutely. Well, so yeah, me and Chris, and you know, I still go to shows around here. Chris goes to shows. So I always see Chris at shows all the time. You know, we talk and. Chris became a good friend. You know what I mean? He, he's always been very awesome with us and everything he's ever promised. You know, he was just like, Hey man, I'm a hardcore guy with a hardcore label. I just need a band that's going to tour and I'll help. You know, he's, he's always been awesome. Anytime I've ever called him for something, he's always helped out, looked out for us and just always been honest with us. So, you know, after like a few years of, uh, yeah, dude, we're going to do a record and he, you know, hit me up. Hey man, we got to do this record. Cause we do a tour and a tour we go good and we come home and then just kind of like not do much for the rest of the year except for a couple of shows. So we always recorded at friends and me forever on, we recorded at this place called the outpost. Uh, and they recorded a bunch of bands have heart, uh, dropkick Murphy's blood for blood. And we just always had a great relationship with the guy there. He ended up selling the place. So, you know, there were all these factors to a new record. Now, Frankie is still a part of the band, and he hasn't really written anything. Colin's doing most of the writing. We're demoing stuff. And like I said, we hit up Zeus, who ended up recording our record. And he, you know, he's an old hardcore dude. He's done major things. But, you know, he did Hatebreed and Death Threat and so Terror Madball. And he hasn't done a lot of hardcore bands. And he was, like, talking to Colin because he's from Western Mass. And he was super into doing our record. But it was kind of on his time schedule because he was flying to California to do Queensryche and crazy stuff like that. But he was like, dude, I want to do this hardcore record. So it was on his schedule. And he was kind of going to do us a favor, like not do it for free, but, you know, he's working with big bands and like hardcore bands at this point. Budgets aren't big. So I kind of used that as an excuse. But coming into last year, I was like, all right, dude, we, you know, I kind of, my dad was sick. He passed. I got married, like all my personal stuff is kind of in the background. I'm like, all right, we got to focus on this band and not just do what's thrown at us. And like, let's get this record. Cause we had these songs that we had demoed and the songs are great. Like Colin wrote them. It sounds like Death for Honor. I love them. And then we're waiting on Zeus. And I remember it was like around Christmas time of 2019. And uh, I was like, Colin, if Zeus doesn't give us a date by January, we just got to go somewhere else. And then... We had four shows at Madball in the beginning of January 2020, and Zeus is like, hey, man, this tour ends in Connecticut. My drum room's there. Let's do this record. So it went from, at some point in 2020, now we got four weeks to go and fucking do this record. Like, we got songs, but they're not completely done. I'm like, here we go. So back to your question. I never told Bridge Nine because I didn't want to tell him until I got in the record. I mean, it's a recording studio, because I feel like he thought it would have been like, sure. Yeah, I doubt you're recording. And I kind of had some money to spot it. So we just went in, started recording it, um, and I hit up Chris, and I was like, we're in the studio, and he's like, I don't believe it, joking with me, and then, yeah, I was like, still want to do the record, can you put it out this year, and it, everything worked out perfectly, Chris was so psyched on it, and Zeus was the man, we recorded a record, and it came out amazing, and I don't know, here we are. Hell yeah. No, I, I was like, really happy that you guys still, uh, you know, were still down for hardcore and still kept it going because you, you got to think uh, 10 years, that's a whole decade. 
and uh you know like and music moves so fast like you know hardcore uh so many trends come and go so the fact that yeah. you guys were able to come back and put out a record um and i i gotta say this about you guys i, I feel like uh, like across the board from uh true till death to unfinished business um your guys's sound I, I feel like has stayed consistent you guys never really strayed um too far from it i uh, never tried to um do anything weird um in my opinion i i, I think uh, you guys kept it really consistent and i, I think that's really awesome uh, especially since like you know i appreciate you, that uh, since i try to like you know even with like i said like colin being in the band and so on unfinished business like i said every other record frankie's written except for maybe the demo and true till death okay because Frankie wrote a lot, but that was probably 50, 50 with a guitar player, but Frankie's written like 90% of the music. And then coming into this, Colin had to take on that role. And, you know, Colin was in a band called shoot to kill from Western mass. He played in hundred demons for a bit. Um, but he's like a fantastic guitar player. And I'm not taking away from Ben, my drummer either, but as these songs were coming in, it sounded like death before dishonor. And it wasn't like, you know, cause I didn't want to put out a record that didn't sound like that Fortis Honor. And Frankie was really occupied with like work and stuff. So he ended up uh, writing lyrics and helping me with uh, writing lyrics for a song and doing some vocal placement. Then he came down and sang on the record. So he was still involved. But I got to give it to Colin for like keeping, because I didn't want to put out a record that didn't sound like that Fortis Honor. And I don't know. I'm just psyched that him and Ben and they killed it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because if um, it didn't sound like you know the, the band, that would be really weird. And I know um, it would open up you guys to like scrutiny. People would probably like judge it and be like, "Oh, like why don't they just title it something else?" You know, like the dumb stuff Absolutely. people say. Absolutely, like especially the same thing about any other band. I'd be like, if it sounds like you know, like I said, I played a hundred demons. If we wrote, I love hundred demons, but if we wrote a hundred demons record, you'd be like, "Why don't you just call it something else?" It's not that sort of honor. You know what I mean? So I was really. You know, when I, I was never nervous and that's why we didn't record, but that was definitely something on my mind. Like, and, and that kind of goes back. We had more songs than just the seven that came out on Unfinished Business, but I just felt like coming out of the gates, first time recording with Zeus, budget was a little bit of thing. I also think in this day and age, people's attention spans a lot shorter. So I kind of went to the formula of Friends Only, the original Friends Only Forever, where it was seven songs. Like, mm -hmm. I think it was seven songs. But like, let's just give them the seven meanest songs for our, like, I don't want to call it a comeback, but I mean, in record, as far as records are concerned, like I didn't want, I just wanted a record to hit people in the face and have energy from front to back. And I don't know. And I, at the end of the day, I was like super psyched on it. I was feeling it because that, you know, you don't want to like lose fans, but at the same time, you don't want to put out something you're not feeling either. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I I feel like uh, like I said, you guys do a good job with keeping that that consistent sound. Like I feel like you could drop unfinished business at any point in your career, and you know it, it wouldn't sound weird coming from you guys. I appreciate that, man. Uh, just curious, uh, there's a track on unfinished business, uh, bad blood. Uh, excuse me, um, who's the other person doing vocals on, on that song with you? That's Frankie. Oh, okay, all right, because I I couldn't put my finger on. I'm like I was like I don't know who this. Nah, uh, that's my. He's like our original bassist. He played mm -hmm. guitar three, but he's like the original. When we were four piece, he was the original bass player. But he sung a lot of stuff with me on records. But yeah, that he wrote. So that's a song he wrote lyrics to. Um, okay, that's awesome. Yeah, so that's Frankie. Okay. Yeah. yeah that one so i got to me but okay so and like honestly like the the whole reason why i wanted to have you on here is because we're uh, just a couple days away from the one year anniversary from unfinished business and yep. i i feel like it's uh you know like awesome and i you know respect you guys uh love the band and i felt like you know having that big of a gap i i just wanted to you know uh 
put some light on you guys and spread some awareness and let people know like hey death force hunter is still here still killing it and we're on the one year anniversary of their latest record so i'm, I'm just like stoked to finally be able to have you on the podcast no i appreciate that man because it's like yeah like i was psyched unfinished business came out uh and like i said i'm back to a point like i'm married i don't have kids uh my wife's super cool with me touring the band's at a place where like like all right we're gonna put out this record we're going to tour, but there's still so much life. And then coronavirus. <laughs> and I'm like, is that a port of honor? Bad luck. Um, but you know, whatever. It's like, I'm sorry. You know, it, it, the band's been together for so long. Like you said, I've seen trends come and go. We've always just tried to be who we are. I don't think we're the coolest band. I, I think we've always worked hard for stuff. We understand what it's like to go through tough times, like whether you're on the road or personally. So this is like another tough time. So it's like, you know, I think the band's in a good place. Uh, member wise, uh, we're very solid for the first time in a long time, even though these dudes have been in the band, like all the pieces are in place and the records there. And even still, so next year is going to be 20 years of death for dishonor. And instead of, so I messed that up. True of death will be two years from now. Sorry. But next year will be 20 years of death for dishonor. And I think, just to follow it up, like a lot of people will re-release something and we are going to re-release True Death on the 20th year of True Death. So that'll be 2022. But next year will be 20 years of DVD. So I think we're going to do uh, just a seven inch uh, of all new stuff just to continue the wave and why put out something old. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so things are kind of good. Like we've been getting together. We've been writing some songs. We have some songs that we wrote before Unfinished Business. So depending on what happens in the world, like we'll still be touring off there. And and I think there's been a big gap of places we haven't been in a long time where we used to hit places every, probably too often when we're touring 250 days a year. So I think like, you know, as soon as things get back to normal or somewhat normal and we can hit the road again, we definitely plan on to, you know? Yeah, I, I would hope so because obviously uh, everybody's plans got messed up and I, I know you guys had plans to go to Europe. Uh, yeah, yeah, we should be in Europe. Uh, well, I actually probably would have just got back, but we had a big European tour. We mm -hmm. had a Canadian, like a small Canada run with Madball that got canceled or postponed. Everything got postponed, but like Europe's next year. Madball was supposed to be September. I don't see that happening, so I don't know. But yeah, we we got a bunch of stuff in the works, and then you know when things are normal. I mean, we just continue to do what we do, and like I said, this is the first time in a long time that we're kind of like in a good place and like want to go out there. You know what I mean? Want to get out there and want to get back to places we haven't been in years. Like, I mean, like I said, we were just on the West coast in March. I didn't played Seattle in like eight years, which is crazy. Cause we used to play Seattle every other month. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I think it's awesome that you guys um, went up there. Cause I feel like um, sometimes uh, tours don't really make it up to the Pacific Northwest. And some people, yeah. I, I feel like, uh, tend to forget that there's an awesome scene going on up there. There's like so many awesome bands uh, from that area. Definitely. So, so I, I think it's cool when I see tours that actually make it up there because I feel like uh, it's, it's a good spot to play and there's like a, definitely a thriving scene up there. Yeah, I mean, we, I know like the Madball Run was going to try to get up there. The dates got switched around a couple times. Things didn't happen. So we're like, you know, what, we'll just go up ourselves. Uh, the shows were cool. I don't think they were like insane. It, it says a lot for, you know, we're one of those bands that like, Maybe we took too much time off. It was still cool shows. I'll never take away like what it was. It just shows that we need to get back there. Uh, and maybe not every other month, but definitely. I love the places that like have a great scene that bands 
skip over sometimes just because I feel like they're a little more hungry for it. So whatever. Yeah, for sure. And that's awesome. That, that That's definitely cool to hear you say. Um, uh, do you want to hear the last Death War Dishonored story that I have? Sure. <laughs> okay. This is this is the, the the last one, and 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 it's all been good memories. So you know the the, the Yuma show. That's a good thing. The the show up in Denver, and this one. Uh, so I used to be friends with um, these uh, guys. They, they used to play in a band from Southern California called Every Man for Himself, and they, yeah, I remember. Okay, so they have a girl guitarist at one point. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And um, so uh, so they. Th- they're like, oh, cool! Like, do um, merch for us on this uh, first run uh, of the tour, and it was, it was the the First Blood California tour. It was uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah First Blood, you guys, uh, Bloodline calligraphy, on the- yep. yeah, yeah, Bloodline, and every man for himself. And I, I did like all the California or all the Southern California dates, uh, Vegas, and uh, like one, uh, I think it was Arizona, maybe. But I, I, and that was like the only time that I've ever gone on tour, and I, I, I thought it, okay. I, I, I thought it was gonna be like the coolest thing. I, I remember just like thinking about like, oh, this is gonna be so fun, going to shows every day and moshing no. every night. But I, I quickly learned, I'm like, okay, it, it's fun, but it's not as fun as I thought it was gonna be. Uh, you know, I, I, obviously <laughs> there's like a, some aspect of work that came along with it. I, I had to go like, you know, um, uh, set up the merch and sell merch yep. and. There was times where I was like sitting, uh, you know, just like wow, like I don't want to be back here. I want to be out, like enjoying the show. But I, like, I understood. Right. I was like, you know, like obviously, um, they have to make money selling merch, so they need somebody here. I can't just you know be around, just, just like playing around and messing Absolutely. everything up. But um, but that whole week, that, that that's like you know, like a time that I'll never forget because being able to see you guys and First Blood, uh, you know, for a whole week straight, it was it was awesome. That's cool. Yeah, I. uh First of all, I feel like merch people are the most like unsung heroes of tour um, and hardest to find because you guys have the worst job because you got to like set up, break down and like, yeah, you can go check out bands or maybe you can watch them, but you're usually stuck behind the table. Um, and it's not like this is your job. You have to be there. It's just the fact like if you want to get to the next show, we need you to sell some merch so we can put gas in our chat tank. Um, but yeah, tour it's funny because everybody thinks touring is like glamorous and that's why like I think it took its toll on everybody with every all the years that we did it and even myself I mean like I said I'd go back and do it a hundred times over but there is a lot of work to it and you know there were times that Force Honor was bigger than others but we're not like hiring people to drive us you know we're taking turns driving and long drives and short drives but uh, I do I remember that first blood bloodline and that dude from bloodline passed away like a few years ago. It's pretty sad. He had like sleep apnea, um, passed away. Those dudes are cool. Um, I think, you know, it's crazy. Did we, did you play or go, were you there for the Rialto show on that tour? You remember that? Uh, Rialto. Yes. Yeah. Cause the, the only, so right. I, I hopped on when it was in Fullerton at, at the alley. Okay. Yeah. I remember that show. I vaguely remember that show. So maybe Rialto was, I don't know. I just saw a video literally came up like two weeks ago from that tour. So maybe you, <clears throat> I don't know. If, I think Rialto might've been the first California show and Fullerton was the second. I could be wrong, but it was funny. I just saw a video from that tour in Rialto, California that literally someone just posted like two weeks ago. It's pretty cool. That's crazy. And I'm, and th- that was probably at the, the RMC, which was like a strange venue. It was like um, near some train tracks and like this like weird part of this like neighborhood. I 
feel like I got, that might have been the. I can't remember. I remember Fullerton. What other shows were on that? Or, or maybe you're thinking that, that, that uh, I, I did see a video. Somebody posted um, from Brawley. It was in a hotel. No, I remember Brawley, California. Yeah, that was the first. Yeah, I remember that show. But no, that's not the video I saw. Is that video somewhere? That's pretty funny. Yeah, there's a portion of that. I think First Blood, um, there's definitely First Blood footage on YouTube, so I've definitely seen that before. That's interesting, yeah. Where's Brawley? Brawley's like the middle of nowhere, but that show was like packed. Yeah, that was like, that's where Jeff would do shows. He'd either, like back then, he'd do shows in like Yuma. That's right. Or I remember, Yuma yeah. Brawley, yep. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, so. And he's still doing, like, I follow him on like Instagram or Facebook, and like I saw, he still does shows at Prison Hill every now and again. Yeah, yeah, he, he he's still at it, um, but I don't think he books as much as he used to. But I think he's getting back into it um, and like doing actually. Yeah, it seems more like stuff. not as much, but I definitely saw him post like a flyer, and I was like, dude, shows. I would absolutely go play Prison Hill. I mean, I wouldn't drive straight out there, but if I was ever on tour, I would absolutely play Prison Hill because I remember that, and it was a cool show. And I remember being like, I remember pulling up and just being like, it's really outside. It's really just like a park, and it was so cool. Yeah, and it's always weird to me that they're able to pull that off because, like, where I live, like, you would never do anything like that. But for some you weird have reason, have to be there in two minutes and shut it down. Yeah, exactly. But over there in Same Yuma, here, man. yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, dude, I remember that, and that's right. He had something to do with that Brawley show. Yeah, that was that was a cool. You know what? I ended up. I think after that Brawley show, maybe I did one more. I ended up having to fly home from that tour, and Frankie had to sing. Really. For like a week, I had like a family emergency, and I had to fly home, and I hardly ever have to. And that's where Frankie and his backups come in. He ended up singing for me, uh, so I think Brawley might have been the. That's crazy because Brawley was yeah yeah Brawley was my last date because uh, I had to go back to to school and work because I was like you know going to junior yep. college at the time and. I was like, you know, trying to be like a responsible young adult. And I was like, no, like I, I, I have to go back to work. Uh, but they're trying to convince me that like, no, like, you should go to, like, just finish like the whole U S tour with this, like, you know, work and school will be there when you get back. And I was like, seriously, I, I was like, young and scared to, to commit, to go across the United States on, on the rest of that tour. So I just unknowing. Yeah. yeah. Especially as like a merch dude and like, yeah, it's cool. It's not like it's your band and definitely yeah. risk. Trust me. I, I, I had a merch dude and he was on that tour. This kid, Ryan, and he's still one of my best friends. And he started touring with us when he was like super young, like 18, and stayed with us for years. I ended up bringing him to Europe and everything like that just because he was awesome. He still does merch for us every now and again. He actually came to California on the last run. Mm-hmm. Like he had to get a real job and do stuff. But that's why I always say like merch dudes are always like the unsung heroes because it's like always the worst job. And like it's not like it's your band. So you like losing, you know, if you didn't go back to school and like, or it's, school got fucked up like it's cool to go across the world but it's like not like it's your band you're just selling t-shirts <laughs> yeah it, it was strange and because like and obviously like at, at that time like i was still like living with my parents and i right there was no way i was going to be able to convince my mom to be okay with me leaving no way yeah with a bunch of people she didn't even know it's crazy like i just you know i remember certain things i can't remember everything uh i just remember brawley and then when you said it, i haven't thought of brawley in forever and once you said it like, I just have a vague memory of just being in a parking lot. And I remember, I don't remember the venue. I just remember a parking lot and a lot of people hanging out. And I remember the show being super cool. And yeah, weird. And like I said, two weeks ago, someone posted a video. I'll have to find it. I'll send you a link on Facebook or something like that from another show. I just forget where it was. And I do remember the Fullerton show because like there was like 100 fights at that thing. Um, but yeah, that was, that, that was a lot of time. That was cool that you were on it. 
and I remember every man for himself. And you know, a couple of those dudes end up doing other bands afterwards and stuff like that. Yeah, they started this uh, this Christian band. Oh, what was the name? I forgot what they're called. Uh, the Great Commission. That's what they were called. Okay. Yeah, so they gotcha. went, from, went from every man for himself to the Great Commission, and then I think they just kind of let that fizzled out, and I don't even know what they're doing these days. Yeah, crazy times. And what year was that? Oh, seven. Yeah, that was like, uh, like yeah, because like, um, yeah, because California came out in two thousand six, and that was like, yeah, like the first. Tour. That was that tour. Yeah. yeah. No, that would make sense because that had to be like oh six because, I mean, unless my years are off. No, no, you're right because I was like right out of high school, so I was like, yeah, yeah, because I was in junior college because I graduated high school in '06. So that's wild. Yeah, that was good times. Yeah, because we, yeah, back then. See, that's what I mean. Like back then, we'd be in California. Like I don't know, every two to four months, and then we just went to California with Madball. Now it's the first time I was in California, and and we did go to California like 2014, and we did some dates with like uh, piece by piece when we did Mexico with them. But mm-hmm. that was our first like real California tour where it was more than like two shows, and that was, it was just crazy like playing places. I'm like, dude, I used to come here all the time, and I took that for granted too, you know. And you get burnt out, but like, I'm like man, I miss stuff, and I miss like weird. There's something cool, like I said. Uh, all right, so there's places like Seattle and Portland that have scenes that maybe get unnoticed at times because it drives far and stuff like that. But we were a band that would play everywhere. And I always love, like, those little scenes like like Brawley or, you know, like that, the Prison Hill-like scene there in Yuma, like Johnson, there's a place called Johnson City, Tennessee. Like, all these little scenes that would pop up and just be so organic because they were just psyched and had a bunch of bands and, like, had a cool... I, I miss those, like... That's one thing about like touring all the time that I miss, like finding cool little spots and being like, "Oh, this place is cool. We got to come back here," you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I was curious about um, Death, Death Before Dishonor. Uh, how do you guys try to find the balance between like touring in the states versus going out uh, to Europe? Because I know, like, because um, you have those bands from the states that aren't really active, but they'll go out and do stuff in Europe, which always like you know puzzles me. I, I assume it's because the the money is good, uh, but I, I'm always just curious, like you know, like how do bands like find that balance, or or like why do bands just go to Europe and not do anything in the states? Uh, I think. So it's money, and when I say money, I don't think like, oh, I'm going to go to Europe and get rich. I just think like, there's a little more risk going to Europe. The bigger bands, or the bands that go there constantly, like, there's just more money. Uh, honestly, like, I feel like, and this is not to fault, like, because this is a blank statement, and I don't want to say it, because like, I think Boston right now has a great scene, but I think Europe in general, their culture is and I mean all across the board, not just in hardcore, just their culture towards music is a lot more elaborate. And I think the scene's a little bigger and it's a little more uh, open-minded uh, as far as someone coming in for metal or thrash to check out a hardcore show or the mixture. So I think between the money, I think um, in Europe has like, you know, a hardcore band in Europe, like a band like us, we could go play like a festival in front of 40,000 people. And it's not, like, oh, dude, we got paid a million dollars. You just got to play in front of 40,000 people. Like, 40,000 people got to hear your band. Like, sometimes in the United States, that takes two tours, you know, or five tours. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I think part of it's just the culture in Europe is a lot more arts and music driven. So the shows are a little bit more packed, you know, and that's not to take away from certain scenes. And I think, like, you know, when you get into, like, the older bands that tend to stick to Europe, like, it's it's a little more guaranteed with the financials. And when you have like a family or a house and stuff like that, as far as us, we were going to Europe a little bit too much. I feel like I felt like, you know, there was a point we we're going to Europe like three times a year and we would like 
it wasn't even about we just like oh this offer is cool we would take any opportunity we could and we didn't want to when you're a band that's touring all the time and you're not like rich, you have to stay on tour to make money, right? So any day you're home, you're not making a dollar. Even if you're only coming home with like 200 bucks, you have to be on tour. So we would take any opportunity and the European opportunities were like flying at us a little more than the States were. But even with that, it was like, all right, dude, we're going to Europe three times a year. It's not even special anymore. So it's like, you know, it's kind of like the States, you know, back in the day in like 2005 to 2009, you would see a lot more bands touring in the States where now, you look at the states and people playing festivals and bands. It's a little more affordable to just fly out to the West Coast or just do a Midwest run. I just think the the platform's a little different in touring nowadays, and I think it's changed a little bit too with like, you know, the This Is Hardcore festivals or the Sound and Furies. Like you kind of jump on that and play in front of a couple thousand people from like a certain coast. Um, but yeah, I definitely think Europe is just. You know, you go to tour in Europe and they they. They feed you a little better. It's it's just a little different, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely get that. And, yeah, the I, I feel like it is true that the model has kind of changed from uh, kind of getting out and doing, like, full U.S. to gain some exposure. And now it's, like, uh, bands, I feel like, kind of lean more towards doing regional stuff here and there. Yeah, you're like, before you would just, like, be like, oh, I'm just going to take this tour. I don't care what it is. And I just feel like a cost versus reward and like you know like it's like in the states and there's certain drives that you know you know you can drive from what like albuquerque to like san antonio and that's like a what 15 hour ride yeah you could play like el paso and el paso is like hit or miss so like financially you could lose a lot of money and when you're already not making money i hate to say like financially because we do it for the love of it but if you can't put gas in your van then what's the point <laughs> right yeah. um but you're right. It's a lot more in like, I just think like, you know, so like when you go to Europe, you rent a van, you get a drive, you know, you pay for a driver, you rent back lines. Like you see that model happen a lot more. Like there's a lot of different van companies in the States where back in the day you'd have to have a van. Like you'd never rent a van to do a U.S. tour. You'd have to buy a van and then drive it into the ground and buy another van. And now you have companies like green vans and you know, other companies like that. So it's a little bit easier to say, Hey, we're going to fly to California and do this West coast run. Um, and come home and then in two months we'll fly to Texas and do a Texas run. I mean, I don't, you know, we, we haven't done a lot of that, you know, like we did fly to California and do that run with Madball. Um, it didn't really make sense to do a full us there, but I, I, I don't know what is better or worse. I mean, I, I, like I said, I like finding those weird middle of nowhere places, but you also, you know, you, I don't know if you've done more tours since that, um, first blood tour but even those six days or five days that you did you know when people start going broke you start turning on each other unless you really understand what it's like so it's kind of hard to like just go out and tour you know and if you know the middle of america is a little tougher to get shows like it used to be then i could see it being even harder and not making it from one place to another where europe it's like it's a little more established uh you know and when I say guarantees, they're not like huge guarantees, but you can do the math on it and be like, all right, I can cover my flight, my van rental, my backline rental, and still go home with 500 bucks. Yeah, I I kind of, uh, well, I, I never went on tour again, and I wanted to still do merch, so I met some people along the way, and I, uh, you know, did some stuff for like, you know, bigger bands at like Warp Tour, and that was like, yep. o- that was like okay, 
And then I remember I uh, did merch for a, a day to remember they, they do like this like fest okay. out here. And I, um, you know, did merch for them. And that was like, you know, definitely way different than anything I, I'd ever done. And I was talking to like some yeah. of the dudes that were there working for other bands. And I kind of was just like, you know, just asking like, oh, like, you know, how do you guys get into this like full time? And they're like, oh, like, you know, just meeting people here. And I was like, all right, that's awesome. And like that day they they offered me they're like, oh, like if you want to be serious about this, like, do you want to go on a hate breed tour tomorrow? And I was like, Jeez. oh shit. I was like, I can't just go tomorrow. Like I actually have like a real job and like responsibilities. <laughs> right, right. It's hard. So, so, so yeah, so it was like presented to me again. And I was like, oh shit, go on tour with Hatebreed. And they're like, yeah, like, don't worry. Like every merch guy's done um, a, a Hatebreed tour. Like, like it's like a rite of passage. Like you'll be fine. And I was just like, I, I was like, I can't, I'm sorry. Like on a day's notice and just give up everything. I was like, I can't do that. Especially right now. Cause I was like, yeah. I'm like, you know, I was like, what? I was like a couple of years ago. So I was probably like 29. And I was like, yeah. it's hard to do that. It's not like an easy thing to just drop everything and go. Granted, if you didn't have a job or work, you might've been like, ah, fuck it. I'll give it a shot. But like, yeah, it's hard, man. And it, it, it's like, so, you know, yeah, it was, it, it's tough, man. So even, and even on that level, like a day to remember hate breed, I'm sure like you might get like a guaranteed daily per diem. But even that, like I know my merch guy did merch for behemoth or something like that mm -hmm. uh he just got an opportunity and that's when he was touring all the time and he got paid well and he got a, it, it was cool but he always loved just being able to like tour with it it wasn't about yeah money's great but it was more about like touring with friends so that's where it gets tough like the whole touring aspect sounds great you got to be able to get along with people when times are hard you got to be able to like deal with it and then you know, if you can't get along, think about it. It's like having five roommates in the closest quarters possible and everybody has a different personality. So it's always, it's always a tough thing. That's why even like us finding members, it wasn't like, Oh, can you play guitar? Cool. You're in the band. You got to be able to get along with us because we got to live together, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, especially yeah, spending that so much time together, you guys have to be able to get along in all like different kind of circumstances. Um, Definitely. Do you remember, uh, this, this is like uh, years ago, you guys were on a that 10 for 10 tour, which I think is insane because oh, yeah. it, it just never happened again. I, I, was, I felt like I feel like a lot of people were kind of looking at that like, OK, like this is crazy. The amount of bands and, um, you know, and how cheap it was or like how's this like going to be like, you know, like profitable. Oh, dude. We yeah, that's it, it's like I think I think like the 10 or 11. That was 2009. So someone just posted like whatever an in I think B-roll was some my old guitar player, but yeah, dude, I talk. Me and Scott Vogel text each other all the time, and make jokes about it because it was like ten bands, ten dollars. We had the craziest drive, so it was like ten hour drives. Um, I remember going into it; it was like the coolest idea. But like, and another weird thing when I was just in California with Mountball, we played Chain, and this guy Paul Conroy, who used to manage a bunch of bands and work for labels and stuff and he no longer does bands he works for like bands and stuff like that but we were talking about that so there's been a lot of 10 for 10 talk um but yeah that was a really cool tour i remember that that was uh it was like being on warp tour in the sense like you're a hardcore band in a van you're not getting paid much our guarantees the first like seven bands all got like 150 bucks a night and the drives were so long so like you'd play a show and then even if you were playing early because the first seven bands rotated every day from first to seventh so you would have to leave a venue and then you have to be the next city at like 10 o'clock in the morning. It was so wild. And they're in like big venues. I remember like played like the house of blues in Southern California, played just weird venues that like since then hardcore shows happened, but like hardcore shows like that didn't really happen. You know? Yeah. 
which was just yeah i i was hoping maybe it would happen again but because uh, it was such a 10, 10 for like, 20 man inflation 10 for 20 oh man it's, it's crazy the inflation edition yeah back then you're probably still able to get a t-shirt for ten dollars but now like everything's yeah. definitely gone up you know what though i'll just say this because i remember like all right when you get like an offer like that and you're going on tour with all these bands you're like this it's just a cool lineup and it's a cool idea right and yeah, you want to make be able to get show to show, but it's cool that a kid can pay ten dollars to see ten bands. But I remember them being like, "All right, each band gets one hundred fifty bucks a night," and like for a ten hour drive back then, I mean, that's like that's probably gas money right there. So you're like, "All right, I hope we can sell merch." But you're competing against nine other bands, and believe it or not, I mean, I, there was only like one or two whack shows on the tour. That rest of that tour was like, it's pretty fucking awesome. Like I said, it were long days. It wasn't like an easy tour to do as far as driving and trying to sleep and like middle of summer and but it was like it was pretty fun i i i, I love that tour it was I, I do like wish something like that would happen again i don't know if it ever could but it'd be super awesome if it did yeah yeah i would love for something like that to happen again because um not too many like annual like hardcore tours like happen anymore it's like things here or there but now it's, right. we just rely on uh, the annual fests that happen right which, uh, yeah, I think it'd be cool to like, and the dude that did it, like he, um, like I said, he was like, he's a hardcore dude, but he was working in like the big time world. And like, he used to do sounds of the underground. So like, he definitely took like the metal summer tour concept or like a work tour concept and put it in the hardcore. And I think he had the right idea. It's just, you know, talking to him years later, it's, I think it's like finding the right size venue that doesn't cost too much and find, you know, some of those bigger venues don't care for hardcore or don't want people moshing and that turns into a nightmare you know mm-hmm. yeah which is but i get it because it's like you know like they're like all super corporate and you know absolutely them probably seeing people like tons of people like like swinging their limbs and jumping off stage and landing on people's heads is probably like that, a, that that house of blue show in southern california i think it was anaheim is this house of blue whatever i just remember going there and do all these signs like no stage dive and i'm like this is going to end horribly and i forget who the first band was they played and the dude the show was sold out super early and people were just stage diving from the rip and there was always bad like people from southern california was like dude security here sucks and i'll give it to security because you know the first band it was like a little weirdy i'm like this is going to end horribly and they finally just said fuck it and let everybody do whatever they want to some extent, but they let stage dive and happen to moshing and it ended up being a phenomenal show. But like you said, like a lot of places aren't cool with that. Yeah. Just because they obviously don't understand. And yeah, there's risk people getting injured and they don't want to get like any lawsuits or anything weird like that. There's a, I don't want to keep rambling on, but I don't know if you heard the story, but a lot, a bunch of people have. So on the 10 for 10, we played Knoxville, Tennessee. And I don't, there's this band, they're not a band anymore. They were called Fingers Cross from Tennessee years ago. Okay. And they opened the show and they covered Marauder. And there wasn't a lot of people there. It was a big venue. You could tell they didn't do a lot of hardcore shows. And it's, I mean, it's Knoxville, Tennessee. So Trapped Under I start like moshing for the first, for them during the cover. A bunch of people on the tour. And dude, all these security guards just started choking people, like dudes on the tour out. And you can only imagine how that ended. Uh, Next thing you know, I swear to God, there was 25 police officers, like cop cars surrounding the place. Show gets shut down after that first band. And it's just, we end up going back to the hotel and it's just on the evening news. So 
everybody always makes a joke that was there or knows of it, like never forget Knoxville, because that's what happens when you put a bunch of hardcore kids in a venue that shouldn't have it. You know what I mean? That's insane. To be honest, I've never heard that story before. That's wild. All the, it, it got set up because of a marauder, like marauder cover, and yeah, that's so insane. like the local band, and, and they end up like touring a little bit, so that you know they were just kids that everybody knew. They cover marauder. Everybody from the tour starts moshing, and then these big ass security guards start choking everybody out. You know, a couple dudes are hitting the security guards. You know how it goes. Yeah. And dude, cops were there instantly, and I went outside, and the whole block. You would have thought there was like a shooting, and there wasn't. Like at the end of the day, a couple people got choked out, a couple violence got punched in the face, but like nothing like insane. Like nobody, no ambulances. Like we've all been to shows where things get bad and stupid. It wasn't even that bad, but mm -hmm. that just shows how much they had no clue. And dude, there was so many cop cars, and literally we're like, all right, let's get our gear, get out of here. I go to the hotel because we end up playing a house later on the night. Us terror, a bunch of people played a house. It was so cool. Cops eventually raided that too, but imagine like 200 people trying to fit in a basement. Didn't happen. That's, um, that's crazy. But yeah, it was all over the evening news as if like these punk kids come into town and just like started a riot. That's yeah. That's so strange to me because like, how boring is that town? That what happened at that venue made it to the the local news. Absolutely. Like there was, and I remember the house that we ended up playing like driving down this crazy dirt road in the middle of the woods. I'm surprised the cops even showed up because there's so much, like the houses were spaced apart so much, mm. but dude, there, I mean, everybody must've known. I don't know what there was probably my space on that day. I don't know, 2009, but it was like 200 kids. I don't know if, I don't think we got to play. I think Tara might've played and then the cops shut it down, but it was still cool. There was like, think about it. You're on like some rural road in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, there's just hundreds of cars everywhere and shots cops just shot showing up and they don't even know what to make of it. And some of the, and it, like I said, it was probably 20 minutes away. So it might not even been Knoxville police. It was, it was just the wildest, weirdest night ever. But I did get to see Tara play a couple songs in a basement that fit probably 50 people with like 200 people there. It's pretty cool. And so like, okay, that kind of situation, uh, you know, the, the main show gets shut down. You guys get hit up by some locals to, to do like a house show. Like, are, are you guys like, like, you know, super down to do that or did it take any convincing? Absolutely. That wasn't the first time too. We had a, we had a venue catch on fire on us. Oh wow. Literally. Oh, fuck, I can't remember. We're on tour, like evergreen terrace and like straight from the path. And I want to say we're playing Arizona, but I don't know. It was some, maybe Texas somewhere. Anyways, it's like in a strip mall and it's a venue and a pizza shop next door and all our gears in there, you know, like everybody brought their gear in first bands playing. I'm in the van. Like oh, I'm hanging out with the dude from straight from path. We're talking about something We're like, dude, what's that smell? We look behind us. The building's on fire. The pizza place caught on fire and it's spreading through the wall and the roof into the venue. And luckily, like the kids, everybody got out all right, but like got the merch and the gear out. Like we couldn't even breathe. And then some kids, and it took hours, mind you. Like there was no way to get out because the fire department was there, like severe fire. And then some kid was like, let's play, let's move this show to my living room. So we went to some kid's living room and I think the show started at midnight. And yeah, we played. It was pretty crazy and cool. Damn, that's insane. Like, I've been to plenty of house shows, and I don't think I would ever want to host one because that's just too no way. <laughs> yeah, it's just too crazy. Too many people, you know, things are going to get damaged, carpet's going to get ruined, maybe a hole in the wall. But it's just like, yeah, like, I would never. That, that's crazy. 
I vaguely remember the, the the Knoxville one. I just remember the basement. It was kind of big. But I'll tell you, that house show that we did play, and like I said, I think we were playing after Terror, and it wasn't like bands were in order. It was just what band showed up. That was the Knoxville thing, and it got shut down. But the house show that we played, like we played this dude's living room. This wasn't like a basement. And it wasn't like a – like it was a decent house in like a nice neighborhood. Cops never came. The show was cool. I mean, things definitely got destroyed. Some kid jumped down the stairway because it had like an upstairs that you could see like a stairway. It was wild, but you're right. Like, I wouldn't be like, yeah, come destroy my living room. But yeah, we're definitely down to play whatever. I mean, I played many, you know, even in our crazy touring days, it'd be days we played basements at someone's house. A couple like, played a basement in Cincinnati years ago. It was Our Dayton, Ohio was insane. Played a basement in Barnesville, Ohio was insane. Yeah, we're not beyond anything, man. It's just, I don't know. We don't care. A show's a show. And sometimes, like like you said, I wouldn't donate my basement, but sometimes those basement shows end up being so wild and cool. It's just awesome. Oh, yeah. Okay, so just to wrap things up, taking it all the way back to, to Boston Beatdown, if you look at all the bands that were, um, you know, mentioned in that DVD, um, you know, uh, pretty important for shaping how the, the, the scene turned out. Uh, like, I'm pretty sure you guys are the only ones that are still really active, like uh, maybe Ramallah, but, you know, it's been a couple of years since they did anything because like, I know they had that release like a couple of years ago. But um, but I feel like when I look at all the bands, it's just you guys th- that are left. And I, I think that's uh, pretty awesome that you guys are still around doing awesome music, you know, for Boston. And I, I'm just curious, like, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And like, what keeps you guys going? Um, I mean, I like when I started Death Force Honor, I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to tour. I, I wasn't like, I'm going to tour the world, right? I just wanted to like get out there and like have kids appreciate my music. And I, there's something about going to different cities and states and countries just to learn about stuff. So we always wanted, I always wanted to be in a band that toured. And this was a band like for my other bands that I was like, this is like my baby. I just want to do this. So, you know, throughout all the member changes and stuff like that, I don't know. Yeah, I could have started a new band. And I think sometimes it could have been easier to just start a new band like X members of, you know what I mean? Um, sometimes coming out fresh, but to me, I don't know. I death before dishonor is me. So I'm kind of proud that we're still a band. Yeah. We've had ups and downs, but I don't care. Yes. I want people like us. I don't care for the cool band or not the cool band. We never started off as a cool band. We just wanted to play music. And this is not like a, yeah, it'd be nice to be a cool band sometimes. And sometimes we have been, but I take pride in Death for Dishonor, and I think I take pride in, like, Boston, and Boston hardcore, and I'm, like, kind of proud to still be a band where a lot of great bands and influential bands, and, and you know, like, I don't think Slapshot, I don't know if Slapshot's on the DVD, but, like, I look at older bands in Boston, and, like, Slapshot's still doing their thing. There's just not a lot of influential Boston bands that are still around, and I'm not saying we are, but just a band that's been a band for 20 years from Boston, because we've seen so many bands come and go. Um, I don't know. I hold that pretty high and that's kind of cool, you know, and I kind of keeps me like as much as I love my band and I love the music. Like I like to wave the flag for Boston too. Like I don't want to sound like corny about that, but I love to like go to different parts of the world and different parts of the state and different parts of the country and just like be like, yeah, we're from Boston. Like, I don't know. So it's cool. 
Oh yeah, no, I, I definitely appreciate that. I feel like uh, I, I took a lot away from that DVD. Like obviously like, um, you know, I, I know there's a bunch of like random fights and stuff, but that was like whatever to me, but just um, hearing uh, you and your friends speak about uh, how proud you guys were of Boston and what you guys did for that scene. I felt like, like for me early on in hardcore, that kind of, you know, set some uh, you know values in me and how I wanted to, uh, you know, uh, respect hardcore and try to, you know, respect it and um, model uh, what me and my friends were trying to do back in the day um, like you know what you guys did and just uh, just be positive about it and keep it going so I just want to say thank you for you know everything that you've done uh, love your band like I said that before and I, I respect you and um, everything that you've done for not only Boston but just for hardcore in general so seriously thank you so much for uh, being down to come on the podcast I, I definitely appreciate that I appreciate it a lot too man that means a lot I mean that's I don't want to keep on rambling, but I'll just touch on two things real quick. I think that like you took, there's things in Boston Beatdown that are positive and they're negative. And some people took it as like a glorified violence thing, which I don't agree with. Like, I, I'm not saying I haven't been in my fair share of fights, but people, I, I just met people who are like, yeah, we beat up everybody too. No, that's not what we were doing. And I think it's cool that you listened a little more than you just watched, if that makes sense. And that's cool. Cause that's what I was hoping and I didn't put it together, but I was hoping some people would at least take the good aspects of what Boston was because Boston isn't the same as Yuma or somewhere or, or Berlin. It, Boston is its own thing. But that's cool, and I definitely appreciate you taking the time to interview me, and I like your three cool stories and that you remember them, and I don't know. It means just as much to me, man. All right, and real quick, before we sign off, is there anything you want to shout out or plug? Uh, just check out the new record, Unfinished Business. Uh, I know I just saw a post today. I'll shout out Bridge Nine. I know they're, it's been tough for all labels, and I just saw that they, their, the place where their warehouse is, or their offices just got bought out. So they're trying to increase their rent and they got to move. So I know they're going to be like putting some stuff online. So I'll just shout out Bridge Nine, uh, because they've always looked out for us and obviously put out our records and they're going through tough times. And I don't thank you and everybody that listens. If you haven't checked out Death Force Honor, check it out. All right. Well, thank you again. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This has been another episode of the Jamer K podcast, Always on Top.